0: Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just want to make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review. That would be very appreciated. All right, guys, let's dive in. But you need to start building a team sooner than later. And I say the most important person that you hire is the person that you need next, which is usually what you're not really good at or don't like doing or what you procrastinate on. For me, I procrastinated and put off answering phones. When, when the phone would ring because of my marketing, I just I didn't like having those seller conversations. It just isn't one of my strengths. So I would avoid it. And because I avoided it, it cost me, cost me deals. It cost me opportunities. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on another Q&A replay. I'm excited to be back with you, excited to be bringing you another awesome Q&A that we do on Facebook every week on Wednesdays from 7 until approximately 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we start at uh, 4 p.m. Pacific Time. So if you haven't joined me live for that, please do that. I think you'll find it worth your time, worth your while. You can submit questions to me. I will answer them. We will interact. It is a total blast. But if you can't make it live, then this is the second best option is to check it out here on the replay. So you can at least get access to the great questions that I'm asked and the answers that I give those questions. If you're interested in that, uh, definitely make sure you're here on Thursdays to check it out. Or go live, like I said, on Wednesdays on Facebook. You can find me at Just Start Real Estate on Facebook. And uh, I will answer your questions live. Guys, we had a great one uh, in this particular episode. Uh, We talk about overwhelm in your business. right? Somebody asked, I'm just like, trying to scale. I'm I'm doing all this stuff. Like, I I don't know how to do more. How do I scale if I'm already at at capacity? Uh, Which was an awesome question and a good conversation that I I had there. Uh, How much to pay your dispositions manager, your dispositions person? If you're a wholesaler, uh, how do you compensate them compared to an acquisitions manager? So that was something we talked about. Uh, Funding your first deal. And also somebody asked me if I had to do it over again, what would I tell myself um, years ago before I really scaled my business, what would be 3 things that I would tell myself in order to get my business back to where it is now? What would be the 3 key things I would want to wanna tell my past, past self? So that's just some of the questions, guys. Uh, we had a great time with this one. I know you're going to love it. So stay tuned for our latest Q&A. All right, we're live, we're back. I appreciate you guys being here. Thank you for being here. Uh, We've got more questions that came in this week that are really, really awesome, actually. There's some great questions. And again, guys, if you don't know, if you're just stumbling onto this uh, purely by accident, uh, we are here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. I answer your questions. It's a live Q&A. You can hop on, ask questions, things that are going on in your business right now that you need help with. And I'm here to help you with those free of charge, open and honest answers. And uh, I want to help you. So so log on every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I'll be honest with you today. I am a little bit slap happy. Uh, In my life, what's going on is uh, I was asked by a friend of mine, Bill Allen, uh, who just wrote a book. Uh, Actually, this is the book. Uh, He just wrote it. It's Seven Figure Flipping Underground. He asked me to record the audio book on his behalf, which is a huge honor. It's very very exciting that he asked me to do that. So uh, I just finished day two of all day recording audio So uh, my brain is scrambled a little bit, but that'll make maybe these questions a little more fun tonight. You'll get a little bit more of a <laughs> an interesting version of me. Um, but that's what I'm doing. And then I'm also getting prepared right now uh, because I am one of the featured speakers next week at Flip Hacking Live. You've probably heard me talk about it. I'm, I'm speaking again this year. Uh, it's happening in Orlando, in, in Florida, on the 14th of October, the 15th, and the 16th. And it's a three day event. It's amazing. It's awesome. The speakers that are going to be featured are absolutely off the charts. Like these guys are some of the smartest. Uh, brightest, most successful real estate investors in the country. And everybody who's taking the stage has some superpower that they want to share with the group. And the the mandate here for the speakers uh, at Flip Hacking Live is go out on stage, present what you're great at, and give people something they can take away and apply in their business. Don't hold anything back. Don't remove any of the steps needed to get it done. Lay out all the steps and create basically a blueprint for success for people who attend the event. So, if you're going to be there, I can't wait to see you. Walk up, say hi, uh, tell me that you you know you see me online or whatever you you know you know who I am, and uh, we'll sit down and hopefully get a second to chat. I would love to talk to as many people as possible. It's going to be a crazy three days for me. I'm going to be not only speaking, but I'm helping MC the event and I'm still working on my presentation and trying to get that dialed in. So I'll have that for you guys, uh, but it's going to be just absolutely awesome. And I'm going to present on uh, how to position yourself to be successful in the next six months. So like a real crash course on what you need to dial in, what you need to like push off to the side, what's maybe not so important, and just focus on what's important. How do you do that? What is important? What should you be dialed into? into, And what can you do to be successful in the next six months? So that's what I'm talking about at the event. That combined with recording the audiobook, just crazy times for me. Very, very busy. uh, But I love it. It's all good stuff, and it's all an honor to be a part of. So uh, that's what I'm doing. But guys, we have some questions from you guys that I cannot wait to get into. Uh, there are some really, really good ones this week, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So let's let's dive in and start here on the first uh, question that I got. The first one is: uh, I started an investing business in order to gain financial freedom and more time to spend with my family, but I'm overwhelmed with the nitty-gritty of running it and spending more time than ever working. What am I doing wrong? Well. Person who asked the question, whose name I don't know right now, you may not be doing anything wrong. Listen, here's the here's the cold hard like truth. And here's the just, you know, tough love kind of an answer. When you're starting out and in, in a new business, real estate's no different, right? Real estate's a business like any other business. You probably will have to put in more time than you ultimately want to have to put in long term right? Long-term, yes. You want the time freedom and the financial freedom. I get that. But that doesn't happen right away. It really doesn't. It, at first, it's you. It's, it's, a, it's a one-person operation in most cases, unless you have a partner. So you're going to end up really having to bust your butt and work a lot harder, right? But it's that it goes back to that saying, um, you have to... The people who are successful have to be willing to do what unsuccessful people are not willing to do or some version of that. I think I butchered it, but, um, you know, work hard now so you don't have to work hard later, kind kind of an attitude. But eventually you should be able to gain that time freedom. And some people never get off of the hamster wheel of working tons and tons of hours and being kind of miserable because they left their nine to five and now they're working, you know, Six to six or something, they're working way more hours. So in the beginning, yes, you're gonna be doing all of the marketing, you're gonna be doing all the lead gen, you're gonna be doing all of the talking to sellers, you're gonna be doing all the negotiating, all the contract signing, all the renovation, you know, walkthroughs of all the, of the properties and hiring contracts. Like you're gonna do all of it. But once you do a couple of deals and you start getting a little bit of success. That's when you need to start building your team fast, right? You don't have to wait years, and it can happen really, really quickly. If you do a deal and make you know, depending on where you are and the deal you do, and right, there's it varies what people make on their deals. But let's just say you make thirty thousand dollars on a deal and you're a flipper, and let's just say you get all your deals from wholesalers right now. Like there's a there's a wholesaler community out there around you, and you've tapped into them and, and you're finding deals with them, and so. You don't have to spend a lot, a lot of money on marketing, or maybe no money on marketing because you're really good at networking and you have that connection with the wholesalers. And you make $30,000, you can take that $30,000 and start building your team right away. You don't have to wait months or years. You can do it after the first deal. Um, or, or maybe it's going to take you a couple of deals, right? If you need that money for, you know marketing or or other things that you need the money for i get it right but you need to start building a team sooner than later and i say the most important person that you hire is the person that you need next which is usually what you're not really good at or don't like doing or what you procrastinate on for me i procrastinated and put off answering phones when when the phone would ring because of my marketing i just i didn't like having those seller conversations it just isn't one of my strengths. So I would avoid it. And because I avoided it, it cost me cost me deals, it cost me opportunities. And so the, one of the first people I hired was someone to answer the phones for me. So once I had someone answering the phones, I ramped up the marketing because I, I didn't care now. you know, Subconsciously before that, I was worried the phone was going to ring. I didn't want to answer it because I didn't like doing it. And so once somebody was answering the phone for me, I started ramping up my marketing and I ramped up my marketing and the person answering the phone was much, much better than me. And so... Then I was getting more appointments. And so I was sending uh I was sending my my acquisition person out on more appointments. We're getting more deals. I'm getting making more money. And it snowballed from there. And that's that's kind of how it went for me. Um, but it it's it's different for everybody. Oh, hang on a second, guys. Sorry about that. Okay. And so that's how it started for me. And it took me You know, it took me, honestly, because I really didn't do a great job in the beginning of building a team and understanding what it took to run a business. And so it took me a couple of years, you know, like three or four years before I started really understanding about building a team. You don't have to do that. It's going to take more time in the beginning. But as soon as you do your first deal or two, you need to start building your team out so you do get some of your time back. I promise you, this business, this industry is a perfect industry to automate to hire, to delegate, and to get yourself out of the day-to-day so you do have time. I promise you, this does not have to be something that sucks up all your time and takes you away from your family. That is not what this business is really supposed to be. And so you can get out of that. Sometimes, like me, I didn't know how to get out of it until I got help. I needed to surround myself with the right people. I needed to surround myself with people who were succeeding at a level that I wanted to be at. I didn't just figure it out intuitively. It didn't just come to me, right? The biggest mistake that we make as entrepreneurs is when we say to ourselves, either out loud or just in our heads, I'll figure it out. I'll just, I'll just figure it out. You know what I'll figure it out means? Usually I am too cheap. To get the direction and get the advice and hire the coaches and the mentors that I need that will help accelerate my business and my success to a point that I will have the business that I actually want. Right. That's a mouthful. And that's, but to me, that's the subconscious thing that you're saying. I'll just figure it out or I'll I'll get it. It'll make sense. It'll get better next year. All of these things is just you not being willing, willing to invest in yourself and in your company. That's what I think right so uh i say go out and hire somebody find a coach find a mentor if you're going to flip hacking live that's a great place to start there are so many people there there's so many people that are going to be on stage and milling around i mean the best of the best are going to be there i offer a program called the find and fun blueprint if you go to find you can check it out you can hire me i can work with you for about a month and get you off in the right direction uh there's also i've talked about it a million times seven figure flipping Group. It's a mastermind. It's a paid mastermind. It's a little bit of bigger bigger commitment. Um, but if your business is to that point, I say, check it out. But either way, get a hold of me and I'll point you in the right direction. But you need help and you need to spend the time, the energy and invest the money in yourself and your business so that you can run a business that doesn't require you to be there all the time. Okay. Uh, comment here in the comment uh, in the chat area, uh, Adam Whitney. What's up, Adam, my buddy? I'm going to see you next week. Adam is speaking at Flip Hacking Live. He's awesome, amazing investor. Uh, he says, as a CEO, as the CEO, when you're not a detailed person, how do you put the appropriate processes and systems in place to scale and expand? So that's a great question, and this is what trips up a lot of people. And there's there's two things you need to know when it comes to putting together processes and systems. Right now, as a CEO, and as the person maybe who's doing a lot of the work in the business, and I know Adam has a team, but as a person who maybe is doing a lot of work uh, in their business, you have to realize whatever you're doing to get deals right now, right? You're getting deals, you're flipping properties, you're wholesaling, whatever you're doing, you have a process and a system. Chances are, it's not great. It's not refined. It's not optimized. It's not efficient, but it's a system. Okay. Now maybe it is optimized and refined. Maybe it's really, really great. But most people say, oh, I don't have a system. I'm not detailed. I can't I can't create systems and processes because I'm just not that person. The fact of the matter is you have a process and you have a system, right? Just like um, when, people, when you get up in the morning, whatever you do first thing in the morning, it's sort of your process and your system. Same with your company. So whatever it is that you're doing right now, you, you need to try to get that down on paper. Even if it's crude, if it's, if it's really basic, it can be a, it could be a PowerPoint, like a, an outline, a checklist, like really simple bullet points, right? Bullet points. And then as you bring people onto your team, right? as you hire that lead intake person, or as you hire that acquisitions person, or you hire that project manager, or or whatever it is, bring them on and have them start fleshing out and detailing the specific, really detailed processes and systems that go with that Portion of your business that business that they're responsible for. So if I hire a lead intake person, once I sort of give them my bullet point training, now uh, essentially, uh, you know, you're you're usually I'm assuming you're hiring somebody that is skilled in whatever it is you're asking them to do. So you hire a lead intake person. Hopefully, they have experience talking to the public, trying to um, create rapport and, and and discover motivation. Hopefully, they have some experience there. But as they start doing the job for you they need to start writing their own handbook in my opinion. If you're not a detailed person, right? If you're a detailed person, go for it, do your own. But what we did in our company was because I'm not detailed, my partner's not detailed, and so we tried to write, you know, manuals and handbooks and it was just a disaster because we were slow and we procrastinated and by the time we finished one section it was obsolete because we sort of changed our processes, and that's the other thing to remember. If you're a new company, if you're just starting out, your processes are going to evolve and change faster than you can create handbooks, and that's why that that blue that uh, bullet point, kind of a checklist mentality when it comes to processes is probably best because if you make it too detailed, you're going to have to rewrite it in three months, six months, eight months. So make it very, very generalized. And then once you bring people into your company, let them flesh it out, let them fill in all of the details of what really is entailed, like from A to Z to do that job. That's, that's my, Uh, That's my opinion and that's my experience of the best way to go about it, especially if you are not detailed as the CEO. You need to get people on board Hopefully, when you hire them, you should be you know you should be putting them through personality assessments and talking to them and and making sure that they have the level of detail that's needed to get that done. But then have them do it because if they're doing it all day long, they know way more about the nitty gritty of that job than you probably do, anyways. Right? You you figured it out to the point that you could get where you got, and then you start hiring people, and then they dialed in and make a real science out of it. So let them help you with those processes and procedures as you expand. <clears throat> Okay, thanks, Adam. And I can't wait to see you next week, buddy. Uh, How many times did it take you? Let's see. Uh, Okay, (laughs) Adam, just in another question. I'll get that one right now then. Adam, why does dispositions get paid less when they hustle as much or more as the acquisitions? Um, In my world, they don't get paid less. What they get paid is a lower percentage of the profits than acquisitions, but that doesn't mean they get, they make less because usually what happens in, in companies and real estate investing companies, and mine is mine works this way. And a lot of people I know, same thing, right? You, you hire an acquisitions, you hire dispositions. And as you grow, you add acquisitions, people to your, to your roster until you to your, um, to your company, but you don't necessarily have to hire more dispo people. So a lot of times the dispositions person can handle twice as many deals as the acquisitions because acquisitions is typically going out, they're driving to the property, right? They're doing their due diligence beforehand. They're doing a lot of follow-up. So we don't want in our company, we traditionally have not wanted our acquisitions people to have more than two or three appointments per day, like two a day is about what we want. So that's two, four, six, eight, like 10 a week, eight to 10 a week is the, is the appointment volume that we've traditionally had our acquisitions people cap out at, because if they do more than that, now this is, this is if you're going in person to appointments, right? Things changed a little bit in COVID and it got a little bit more Uh, We could do more volume with our acquisitions because they weren't going out on appointments. They were doing them virtually. But when you're going out on appointments, eight to 10 per week, because if you're, and and believe me, your acquisitions people will, if they're really, really good, they will beg you to go on more than eight to 10 because they'll say they can handle it. But what we found, and I'm, I'm talking with some great acquisitions people. These are not people who are not really, really great. Great acquisitions people, including my partner who does acquisitions for us. He even said, when you get past eight to 10 appointments per week, things start falling through the cracks, like follow-up, like due diligence, right? Sometimes appointments get cut a little shorter than they should because you have to get to the next appointment and you have to drive an hour to get there. So we want our, and, and by the way, when you have you know eight to 10 appointments, Chances are a couple of them may cancel during the week. And so now those get set to the next week. So if you already have, you know, eight appointments set for the next week, and then somebody cancels on Thursday or Friday and it gets pushed to the next week, now you have 10 or, or nine, right? You have more. Like you, it'll start compounding. And all that follow up also compounds because when we go on eight or 10 appointments, we don't get eight or 10 contracts necessarily. We typically get 30 to 35 hit rate on our appointment to contracts. And so that means there's like 65 or 70% of our deals do not come in the first appointment, which means there's follow-up for all of those. And that follow-up for all of those that didn't happen this week, I have to follow up next week. Next week, I have some where I didn't get the deal. So I had to follow with that. The following week, but the ones in the week before are also on there, so it starts snowballing and it becomes very overwhelming to do the level of follow up that your acquisition person needs to do. And so, to get back to the question, acquisitions people sort of get capped at that eight to 10 appointments a week, um, and that'll generate you know two contracts, maybe. So, those two contracts that one acquisitions person that's all they're getting commissioned on, those two contracts that they got, but Dispo they can send out emails and run people through houses with lockbox from their from their desk. And so typically acquisitions people can handle about half of what a dispo person can handle, right? So for every two acquisitions people, you typically need one dispositions. And so dispositions um, compensation is usually a little lower, but they're getting twice as many deals as the individual acquisitions person's getting, if that makes sense, right? Kind of a super long answer, but that's in my experience and my company and a lot of folks that I've mentored and coached and you know, friends with uh, around the industry, same thing, right? Their dispo person can handle a lot more deal flow than acquisitions. So they don't get paid quite as much on per deal. But they're not going out there and hustling that deal the way the acquisitions person is following up and following up and following up. So acquisitions gets a little bit bigger piece of that individual deal. Dispo gets a piece of more deals or they get more pieces of the pie. So that's why. Okay, next question. How many times did it take before you finally found funding for your first deal? Great question. It it didn't take any time. So what I did with my first deal is... I funded it. I funded the, it was a flip. I funded the purchase of the deal with a, with a mortgage, like a regular mortgage from a mortgage company. That's how I bought the property. So I had to put a, like a 3% down payment down. They paid for the purchase of the property. And then I paid for the rehab out of my pocket. And that was a combination of, cash on hand and credit available, right? So it was $15,000 at the renovation cost. I had, I think like five or 6,000 in the bank and the rest of it was all credit card. So went into credit card debt to do the first flip. And so that's how I funded my first deal. Now in the middle of that deal, or when I got started, I started a Facebook uh, page. I think back then they were called business pages, but, I started a business page and I started documenting, video documenting and pictures, the journey of that first deal. And so when I did that, I started attracting people in my network that was seeing what I was doing. And some people reached out and said, Hey, we're following you on Facebook. We see what you're up to. Really, really cool. We love it. We love what you're doing. You guys are amazing. We want to be involved in your next deal. We have some money. We would we would like to, to be involved with you. And so the first deal that I did was a mortgage purchase price. You know, purchase price was paid by the mortgage. I paid for the renovation out of pocket. We ended up making fifteen thousand dollars profit. So obviously, I was able to pay off the mortgage, pay myself back, and still have fifteen thousand dollars above and beyond all of that, which was awesome. And so I had two people that reached out and offered to fund, fully fund my next deal before I even finished with the first one. And so after that first deal, for me, I used private money to flip all my houses from that point forward and, and always have. So that's how I did it. And I, I think that it's it doesn't even have to be as hard as I made it. I didn't have to use a mortgage and Use my own personal savings. There are companies that have that do hard money lending. It's called hard money lending. And they will lend you, well, most of them will lend you up to 90% of the purchase price and all of the renovation budget, right? Some companies will lend you 100% of the purchase price and 100% of the renovation. I own a private, uh, uh, I should say, I own a hard money lending company myself uh, called Blitz our Capital. And for people who are inside of the seven-figure flipping group, we loan 100% purchase, 100% of the renovation. If you're outside the group, we can talk, but it's not going to be a 100-100. It'll be a little lower than that because I've given the seven-figure group exclusivity as far as the 100% loan. Um, but still there are lending companies out there who will do that. And then if they only loan, say 90%, there are companies out there that will provide what's called gap funding. And so you can borrow the gap funding, that gap money, that 10% that that the hard money lender wants you to come to the table with, you can borrow that too. So essentially you're getting all of your costs paid without having to take any money out of pocket. So that's how I did it for me. I know people have all kinds of different stories, but Most people make it harder than it has to be. It doesn't have to be super, super hard. There are companies out there that want to lend you money on your deal and it's asset-based. So you don't necessarily need good credit or a track record. You just have to have a really good deal under contract and a lot of hard money lending companies will lend to you just based off of that deal and the asset that they're gonna have as collateral. So that's how I would do it. Okay. Uh okay, next one, Adams. <laughs> uh rolling with you. Okay. Uh if you could go back, here we go, Adam again, my man. If you could go back and tell Mike Simmons on his way to his first million dollars, uh, great book, level jumping. Thank you for the shout out. <laughs> uh, three things. What would they be? So if I could go back and tell Mike Simmons on my way to the first million, three things, what would it be? Um yeah, it's a good question. I do cover these in my book, and there's more than three, but I'll I'll take the three that are probably the biggest. Number one, uh, before I got really too far down the road of that first million, I really limited my my success and I slowed down my success by not building a team. Right? We talked about that a little earlier tonight. You have to start building a team early, and it doesn't have to be. People that you hire that are like W two employees or whatever, like you don't have to necessarily have this huge like cash flow situation where you're paying a bunch of people a lot of money, right? Bringing in um, realtors, number one, is a is a great person to have on your team, especially if you're a house flipper, right? You need a really good realtor on your team, and you can hire people on a commission basis. And I didn't really understand that. I, I just thought if I hired people. I was on the hook for their salary. And if I didn't make money, they, they didn't get paid. And, and now they can't pay their mortgage and they can't buy food for their family. It was like this whole you know stressful thing that I was going through. And honestly, the first most significant hire that I made was ac- my acquisitions person. And the reason it was significant, and the reason why I would go back and tell myself this earlier is I did acquisitions for a long time in my company. And I would grade myself a solid, B minus back then. I was a B minus acquisitions person. It's not in my it's not in my nature to be a salesperson. So I was doing okay, but I'll tell you what okay saying an acquisitions person is okay is a is code word for losing the company money because you need someone who's really good at acquisition. So. I'll I'll give you a a little bit more of a concrete way to to imagine this. So when I would go out on five appointments, when I was in acquisitions, when I was doing my own acquisitions, if i go on five appointments, I would typically average about one contract for every five appointments, okay? When I hired an acquisitions person, and when I hired an acquisitions person, I hired someone who was a rock star salesperson. That was their superpower. And when he went out on five appointments, he was averaging two to three contracts right out of the gate. And by the way, he was not a real estate person. He was pharmaceutical sales. That was his sales experience. So I would run the I would run the numbers. I would give him the MA. Oh, maximum allowable offer. I would give him a number, okay? So he would go out on an appointment and I would say $75,000. That's the most you can pay. That was all he had really to work on. He would go there, create rapport, listen to them, listen to their issues, find out what their problems were, find out what their challenges were. He would solve their problems. Then he would talk price. And by then they loved him. He was already solving their problems. And so he would get the contract for 75 or less. So... um. That's one thing I would tell myself, hire sooner. Uh, another thing I would tell myself is the systems and processes we talked about, get them down on paper and start following them. Because when I started flipping properties, I would get a property under contract. I would go to the house, walk through it, figure out what I was gonna do. I would you know, figure out what materials I wanted to use, tile and paint and carpet and hardware and cabinets and all these things. And then we would do it and the job would get done. I would get the next deal under contract and I would go and start that process again, but I would just, I would pick different materials and different paint. And it was almost as if <clears throat> I was trying to make everything I did unique. When doing things in a systemized manner and getting the exact same paint, the exact same flooring, the exact same counters for all the deals that you're doing, so much more efficient. And I was running it, um, I was running it like it was just a new adventure every time. And so I would tell myself to create a process, simplify what I'm doing, and just repeat, repeat the process. Don't, don't create a new process every time. Repeat the process. Um, and the last thing I would tell myself, and this is, this is probably the thing that kills most businesses. Um, it's like a silent killer. What I, The third thing I would tell myself is track your numbers so many investors guys and i'll tell you what here's a here's a dirty little secret that most people don't want to tell you who not only new companies or new investors but experienced ones i know and i have met a lot of successful experienced investors who are not tracking their numbers and they're terrified every month, every quarter, every year, because they're not positive how profitable they are. They don't know for sure what marketing strategies are working best for them. They just sort of know money's coming in, money's going out, and there's money there at the end of the month, so I must be doing okay. And that will work for a while. It will eventually kill your business. A lot of businesses go out of business because they don't know their numbers, right? I gave him presentation on this a few years back at Flip Hacking Live. And the analogy that I gave was a pilot could get, can get a plane off the ground without his instrument panel. Like a, a good pilot can get the plane off the ground, right? So an entrepreneur can get a business off the ground in a lot of cases without knowing the numbers. But once that pilot's up in the air and maybe there's cloud cover, maybe the weather isn't great, Right. Things start happening in your business. Right. There's challenges. There's good days. There's bad days. You know, it gets a little bit cloudy. If you can't see where you're going, if you don't have clarity in what you're doing and what the numbers are of your company, you will eventually run into a mountain. Or a tree, or something. Like your plane will crash because you don't have a clear idea of what's going on in your company. So you need to track numbers. That's the third thing I would tell my my you know past self. Know your numbers, and I've talked about this many many times. I have stories about not knowing my numbers, very embarrassing stories. I'm not going to tell them here; they're too long. But just suffice to say, I, I just. I really didn't know my numbers for a number of years. I I just didn't know what was working, what wasn't. I, I just didn't know how profitable I was. I was sort of lost. And it's embarrassing, but it happens to a lot of people. There's nothing to be embarrassed of, but it's something you need to fix. So those are the three things I would tell myself. Adam's getting me all riled up here, talking about what I wish I would have known. I've talked about this before. I, when I go back and look, <clears throat> it took me five years to even start investing because I was, fa- I was afraid, I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of embarrassment. I just procrastinated. whatever, like all these dumb excuses that I threw at it. But the bottom line is I decided I wanted to do it. And then I didn't actually get my first deal under contract for five years. So for five years, I sat there in fear of failure. And I went back and looked at what I've made over the last five years and conservatively applied that and figured out like, what, how much money did I actually leave on the table by, by not even starting for those five years? Like, How much more money would I have made by now if I had started five years earlier? And I calculated one day painstakingly and did this to, I guess, torture myself, but I left about $3.1 million on the table, $3.1 million in my bank account if I would have started five years earlier. And that was a conservative estimate. could have been more. Right. But I assume even if I would have taken action, there would have been some ramp up, there would have been some lessons learned. You know, maybe it wouldn't have gone great in the beginning, but that's what I lost. That's what I calculated I lost. So um, <clears throat> that's it. You got to get going. Okay. <clears throat> Next question I am interested in investing in luxury in the luxury home market. Have you ever invested there? And do you have any advice? Um, I really haven't invested in the luxury home market, so to speak. I've invested in properties in my local market that were at the high end or higher end of the market. So, uh, in Michigan, and this is probably this is I, doesn't probably one hundred percent varies by state, and it may seem laughable to you if you're listening to this from Southern California when I tell you these numbers. But in Michigan, the average. Median home price is about one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars, somewhere in there. Two hundred thousand dollars will get you a very nice three bedroom, two bath brick home with a basement and a nice subdivision. Like it's just it's a it's a it's a middle of the road price, right? Um, I, I bought a house that had an ARV like three fifty, so it was a little bit higher end, nicer neighborhood, nicer town. Um, Uh, but never the luxury home market. And so I don't have a lot of advice for you there because I've never done it. However, I will say this, and and here's why I've never done it. I'll tell you why I've never done it. I've had opportunities to buy $800,000 million houses. And in Michigan, a million dollar house is something. That is a mansion. So the reason I've never done it is it's such a niche market and the the buyer pool is so small and the things that will take you out of favor with the buyers can be so finicky finicky that I just don't do it. I would rather buy 10 houses that sell for $150,000 than $1 million house. Because two things, I'm spreading out my risk over 10 properties... The buyer pool, or the number of people who are who will be my buyer or potentially be my buyer for those ten houses, is so much larger, and there's so many more um, programs for first-time home buyers and things and people that will be in that market that it's just it's more predictable. It's in my opinion safer, and all my eggs aren't in one basket. So that's why I don't do luxury homes. Um, I I have friends I've known people who do and they love it. And so it's a little bit of a preference thing, but from a practical standpoint, I want to know that I have the biggest pool of buyers in my market that will be looking at all of my properties all the time. And, you know, I, that's just how I feel about it. But, but the luxury home market is fine. People do it, right? It's just, it's not my thing. So I don't have a lot of advice, but that's why I don't do it mostly. And there's just, I'm in a market where there's just so, so, so many, Hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollar houses, like thousands and thousands of them. I'll never run through all of them and need to move to the luxury market. I can make unlimited money staying right where I am. So that's that's just why I do it. Okay. Um. Next question. Let's see here. Uh, boom, 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 boom. I'm just looking now. Adams is is uh chatting away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Next question. I am struggling with my partner because even though we have an equal share in the company, it seems like someone still needs to be the boss. Any thoughts? Well, uh, I've given a whole presentation on partnering, and partnering is is tricky. So you're str- you know this is definitely one of those questions where I would. I would really love to have some give and take back and forth questions. I I would have a a lot of additional questions here, but I'll answer the question with the information that I have. So it, you said it seems like someone still needs to be the boss. And that is not necessarily true. I, I understand why you're saying it. I've, I've sort of been there. There's ways that you can do it where you don't have one, one boss. Okay. But I think it's easier when there's one boss. And a lot of times, if you're using the, the traction business model, the Gino Wickman book, Traction, there's he says there's typically needs to be a visionary. Um, and a visionary is someone who just has the ideas, right? They, they cast the vision for the company. They're constantly coming up with ideas. And then there's somebody who is called the integrator. The integrator is the person who distills all of these ideas that the visionary has and distills them down into what they can implement and maybe what they should implement at the time. And then they start building out that process and building out that plan and really making these ideas, these abstract ideas of the visionary. Making them actually functional, so they work within the company, and that's a great relationship. If you have that visionary integrator relationship, that's great. The integrator is typically what you would traditionally call a COO, a chief operating officer, right? They run the company. The visionary, a lot of times, is the CEO, right? They're they're so kind of sit on top and they're they're sort of casting that vision and they're and they're looking ahead and they're trying to figure out. How do they stay profitable? How do they get into new things so that they always become that they're relevant and that they're always inter, you know iterating and, and getting better? And so that's what the visionary and the, and the integrator do. So when you have a partner, though, um, for my part, when, in my business, my partner and I, we're both visionaries, which is a challenging, challenging scenario. When you have two visionaries, it doesn't work most times. It's better if one of you is good at implementing and managing people, and the other one maybe is better at just coming up with the ideas. And But if you're if you're both one of, you know, you're both, maybe you're both integrators, maybe you're both good at, at just implementing and, and managing, or maybe you're both good visionaries. One of you doesn't necessarily have to be the boss, okay? But if one of you isn't the boss, you still need, in my opinion, to divide and conquer. You need to have a clear, like if you and your partner are both like, in the business, like working in the business and managing people, you need to find a good separation. So for example, in my company, my partner is a salesperson. He's really, really, really good at sales. And so he handled lead intake and he handled acquisitions. Those two departments were his to run and be in control of and be the one voice in that department my area was i handled marketing i did that on my own and then i managed dispositions and transactions the transaction coordinator those two <clears throat> excuse me those two departments were under my control right so he handled the front end sales i kind of handled the back end operations and dispositions and and we kind of ran them as like two companies inside of the same company and it worked Great for a long time. It, it still is working, but we've sort of come up with a little bit of a hybrid of that. We don't quite run it that way anymore. And we've ba- basically we we both traded off the running the company, being the one voice responsibilities. I had it for a while. He had it for a while. And so we're always trying to make sure that we're running things as as smoothly and efficiently as we can. But I think the big thing when it comes to partners is there's a few things that you have to pay close attention to are you both working the same amount of hours? Does one of you just put in more time than the other person? That will cause frustration. So so examine that. Are you the person who gets in at eight in the morning and works until five or six or seven at night, and then you're kind of doing things at home also, and then you're working on the weekends and your partner kind of rolls in at 10, rolls back out at three to go home and sort of shuts it down for the night and doesn't work weekends. Like if you have that scenario, there's going to be frustration, okay? So that's one thing. Make sure the work ethic is compatible so that there's no hard feelings. Another thing to think about is is risk tolerance. And I don't think this is what you're dealing with, but it is something to think about when your partners, if one of you is like, all risk, you know, no risk, no glory kind of a thing, and the other person's very conservative, that's gonna eventually cause some, some rift. So it doesn't sound like that's what you're dealing with necessarily, but just understand um, risk tolerance is something that you need to be compatible with. Uh, another thing to think about is your long-term goals. If your long-term goal in your business is to get to a million dollars in revenue, and then just sort of put it on autopilot and just let the company make a million dollars, and that's all you ever wanna do, then that's great as long as your partner doesn't want to make this a 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollar company. Because eventually in the beginning, you'll be on course with each other, right? You both want to get to that million, right? There's no difference in getting to a hundred million or one million when you're at 50,000, right? So you'll get to a point and then you're gonna to want to level off when it gets to a million and they're gonna to want to keep going up, right? So so pay attention to that and make sure that, that that's in alignment. And then the last thing. <clears throat> Is complementary skill sets. So sometimes it can seem like you're both stepping on each other. If you have the same skills, if you bring the same thing to the table, for example, if I was a lights out salesperson and my partner is a lights out salesperson, like we're we're kind of stepping on each other, and we're du- we're not bringing complementary skill sets. We're both good at the same thing, so it's like too much of one thing. If one of you is great at sales and the other one's really, really great at the details and like tracking the money and the KPIs, where salespeople traditionally aren't great at that, then that's great, right? But I'm thinking what's probably happening here is you guys don't have very, very clear lanes where you, you say to each other, you are in charge of these five things and I'm in charge of these five things. Like hundred percent in charge and responsible for them, the old saying of if you're in, if everyone's in charge of everything, nobody's in charge of anything, and that could be what's happening here, right? You don't have clear enough. You don't haven't carved out what you're responsible, you and your partner are responsible for clearly enough. So it seems like you're both kind of maybe talking over each other and and going behind the other person and doing things differently or changing things up. That's what I'm assuming is happening here. So it's not that you need a boss, although that's fine. If one of you, like I've talked about visionary and integrator, if you clearly see that you guys are one of you or each of those, take those roles and own it. The integrator runs the operation, the visionary comes up with ideas. They cast the vision, right? They do those kind of things. Um, so do that. And that will probably solve it. But if you guys aren't in that situation, you need to, you need a, to divide and conquer. You need to figure out what you're each responsible for, take complete ownership of it and, and run with it. And then you shouldn't get in each other's way too much. That's what I did for years. Okay. <clears throat> Another question from my man, Adam. I love marketing. Some say just go deep in one channel. I personally like to hit lists from two angles. Can you talk about your take on marketing in the current market? Yes. <clears throat> so yeah, some people will say go deep in one channel and I get that. I'm not necessarily there. And I, what you're saying is you wanna hit a list from two, two angles, right? So you're talking about maybe having a list And for example, I'm not sure this is what you're saying, but for example, you're saying have a list, do direct mail to it and then skip trace it and maybe cold call that same list. And I think that's a great idea. The problem with taking one marketing channel and going really, really deep is you literally are putting all your eggs in that one channel, right? You're putting all your eggs in that one basket. And if that one channel doesn't pan out for whatever reason, you don't have anything else going on. So I use a fishing analogy. I am not a fisherman, but the fishing analogy I use is I like to have more than one line in the water. Now, that, like anything, that can be taken way too far, right? I like pizza, but if you force me to eat pizza every day for a year, I no longer want pizza, okay? So what? I, there's too much of a good thing. To me, pick a channel that you really want to go deep in and, and do maybe one or two other supplementary marketing strategies to supplement that. And, and the, the reason I'm saying supplement and not just two full-on channels is a lot of people have a limited marketing budget, especially in the beginning. And so if you're doing direct mail, chances are you're dumping most of your budget into the direct mail campaign. And so you can't do PPC and then hire a team of cold callers. Like The the money will run out. Okay, so I'm trying to give you a practical viewpoint here for the majority of people that might hear this. So, and for most people, I think what a great strategy is is if you're going to go direct mail, for example. And let's be honest, direct mail is what has funded or not funded, what has fueled most of the lead generation for most of the investors that I've ever met in the last. 10 years. Okay. So I'm not saying it's the best or it's the only one. I'm not saying you should stop doing other things and only... do I'm not saying that. I'm, what I'm saying is if I rounded up the 10 most successful investors that I've ever met, I'm telling you right now, the vast majority, vast majority of their deals they've gotten from direct mail. Okay. So if you do direct mail, I would supplement like to Adam's point, I would skip trace it. And I would supplement with maybe text blasting and ringless voicemail, for example, okay? I'm not saying those have to be the three, but direct mail is gonna take up the majority of your budget. Text blast and ringless voicemail is so, so inexpensive that you can kind of bolt that on as an additional channel for very, very, very little uh, expense. And so that would be that would be my advice to most people, okay? If you're going to do, um, and at Flip Hacking Live, someone's going to be talking about driving for dollars. Okay. If you do driving for dollars, let's just say, and that's your main marketing method or your main channel, that's where you get most of your deals. Again, that doesn't cost a lot of money. And so you could add another couple of things like text blast and ring us voicemail and your marketing budget is still pretty darn low. But if you're going to add something like direct mail, Just make sure you don't overextend because if you're going to do something, anything, any of your marketing channels, by the way, you need to give them a long runway. I suggest four to six months on whatever marketing channel you try, give it four to six months before you abandon it and say it doesn't work. And so if you're going to do that and and you have a fixed marketing budget, you have to make sure that if you're doing something that's paid, that's sucking up a lot of that budget, that you don't just say, to Adam's point, you don't just say, well, this is all I'm going to do because it's all the money I have. Find another one or two things that you can do that do not take much, if any, money, and also do those so you got more than one line in the water. That's, that's, my, that's my opinion. Okay. Adam, you're the man. Uh, I appreciate you participating. I appreciate the questions. Like I said, cannot wait to see you next week, my brother. It's going to be fun hanging out with you for three or four days. Uh, I am going to stop here for the night. I'm going to stop the questions. There's a few more here, but we'll, we'll push them a little bit to the next week. Uh, they're great questions too. So I don't want to miss them, but we're coming up on an hour. Guys, uh, I, I think I mentioned it once, but I'm going to say it one more time. My program is starting at the end of this month. It's called the Find and Fund Blueprint. And it is what it says. I'm going to teach you the two most important aspects of real estate investing, finding deals and getting them funded. If you can do that, most of the other stuff will take care of itself or you can can seek out help to get those things dialed in. But you need to be able to find deals and you need to be able to fund them. In this market that we're in now, People are coming to me all the time and saying, I'm having a hard time finding deals, right? Because deals are selling for crazy amounts on the MLS. And so finding and funding deals are super important. But as a bonus, I am also going to teach you how to set your business up. I'm going to teach you how to do that marketing. I'm going to teach you how to talk to sellers. I'm going to teach you how to talk to wholesalers. I'm going to give you all of the materials. All of the stuff, all of the strategies, all of the documents that I use to run my business is going to be included. All you have to do is go to findandfundblueprint.com, get into the program, sign up. I'll see you there. And I will help you blow that business up this year. It's not too late. I've been saying that for a while, but I'm telling you, it's not too late. I can definitely help you make things happen before the end of the year, but you have to do your part. You have to go to findandfundblueprint.com. You have to put your name in. You have to join the program and I will help you. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, Wednesdays. Next week, however, next week, I will be at Flip Hacking Live. So it will not be happening next week. I'm sorry, I apologize for that. But we will be back the following week, which I have no idea what the date is. So if someone behind the scenes can type it in real fast and tell me that'd be great, but not next week. The week after that, we'll be back here again, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And I will see you then. No one's typing it in. Sleep at the wheel. Okay, that will be the 20th. So uh, October 20th, I will be back here. Uh, But before then, go sign up for the program. I can't wait to see you there. If you're gonna be at Flip Hacking Live, come and say hi. I would love to talk to you. It's going to be an awesome, awesome event. And uh, I'll see you guys there. All right, we'll talk to you next time. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.